Welcome to another episode of the Crash Course Fashion Podcast. My name is Brittany Sierra and I'm your host. Last week we shared a conversation from the 2022 Sustainable Fashion Forum about what really makes a sustainable material. And today we're sharing another conversation from the conference, this time about bio-based materials and how to integrate them into existing supply chains. Next-gen materials are the talk of the sustainable fashion space. Drawing inspiration from nature, next-generation bio-based materials use science and innovation to cut the environmental footprint of existing textiles and are often held up as alternatives to animal or petroleum-derived textiles. However, despite the interest in next-gen materials and the rapidly accelerating landscape of the market, there are still a multitude of challenges that come with scaling material innovations for commercial use. So the question really becomes, if there's so much interest in these next-gen materials, how do we move from interest to integration? To help answer this question, DuPont Biomaterials powered a conversation during our conference about just this, about how to integrate these next-gen materials into existing supply chains. So if you're curious about next-gen materials and even more curious about how to integrate them into the supply chain, into the fashion system, then keep listening. Hello, my name is Thomasine Dolan. And I've been in the fashion industry uh, from a designer's point of view for over 20 years. I live in New York City. Hi, I'm Mike Salzberg. I'm the global business director uh, from DuPont Biomaterials. I've been working in this space for well over 16 years. Um, I originally trained as a scientist and currently living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Gaetano Krupe. I'm a partner with Prime Movers Lab, which is a deep tech venture capital firm. Uh, I spent most of my career actually as an entrepreneur. Uh, in Silicon Valley and, uh, and became an investor a few years ago uh, to help uh, more brilliant people than me get their products to market. Brilliant. And we're talking about one of those brilliant products here when you're talking about biomaterials. <laughs> and I guess with, with that in mind, obviously so many of the, the biomaterial conversation is based around, you know, first understanding what it is. Um, so it'd be great to kind of get a background into that, Mike, and then we can go into, into some more kind of deeper devil questions on the business challenges there. Sure. Yeah. So what we talk um, about in this context, bio-based materials, what we're talking about are um, materials and chemicals that are made from renewable resources, typically plants, rather than from fossil-based resources. So it's a little bit confusing because sometimes people use biomaterials to mean materials that are used inside the body for medical purposes. Um, and sometimes it gets confused with biodegradable. So in this case, what we mean really is where are the materials coming from? Um, what impact are they having on um, the value chains in terms of are they bringing more fossil carbon up into the world or are they using plant-based carbon typically to make the material? So that's typically what we mean by bio-based materials. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. And I think that when you're talking about you know biomaterials, that difference between biodegradable and biomaterials uh, still needs to be you know made as a distinction. I think a lot of the times it does get conflated. It must be quite annoying for you there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's interesting because you know petro-based materials or fossil-based materials can be biodegradable. Renewable materials or bio-based materials can be non-biodegradable. So they really are talking about two really different things. One question is what kind of um, carbon or what kind of materials are you introducing into the circular economy? And then the other one is how does it, what's the end of life story? Is the material biodegradable out of the environment? Yes or no? Yeah, definitely. And I guess looking at it from a fashion perspective, I know that, you know, integrating these kind of materials has been, you know, starting to come up a little bit more in conversation. And Thomasine, in terms of kind of integrating those kind of next generation materials, what do you think are the kind of business challenges that come with that? And how would a brand go about doing that in the supply chain? The business challenges are, um, so the fashion industry really is fast paced and they're not very patient and they don't like to wait. And we've been so spoiled by, you know, someone comes in from a mill or a tannery with a big suitcase and they show you this assortment that you can order. You can order any color, any weight, any, you know, 
Um, and it's there. It's nothing has to be redefined or re-examined or reinvented. So, so right now the brands, there's actually there's actually quite a demand from the brands. They really want, they want this new story to tell. They want this next generation of materials to tell, but there isn't supply yet. Um, everybody's still in the um, development stage. There's a lot of R&D going on. There are very few next-gen companies, next-gen material companies that are, red, that are scaling. Um, there's just very few. Most of them are R&D or in their, their prototype stages. So it requires patience and hopefully investment from brands to help push them along a little bit. But, but brands are ready for it. They all need new stories to tell. They all need new ideas. Everyone's looking for a new idea. Obviously, in terms of material innovation, that's something that's you know, quite a hot topic right now. What kind of opportunities do, do those materials present, Mike? Um, and how can kind of material science improve fashion's kind of most pressing problems um, and make fashion more sustainable? Yeah, so what we found over the years, and again, we've been out in the marketplace now for about 16 years with a product called DuPont Serona, which is used you know, pretty broadly in the fashion industry. What we find from, um, from brands and from consumers is nobody wants to compromise, right? Everybody wants the, um, the clothes that they're wearing to be high performance. For, I'll give you a great example. Um, in the last 15 years, a huge trend we've seen is stretch fabrics. So people want to have more stretch, more comfort in their in their. Um, in their fabrics and their garments. And if you say to them, oh, well, I can give you a bio-based solution, but you have to give that up. It has to either be less stretchy or less durable, or people don't want to hear that. So a, a huge challenge for those of us on the material side of things is um, it's not enough to just bring something that's bio-based. It has to also be high performance and it also has to be at a price point that's sort of affordable for people. I mean, we're not going to be sitting here making you know, 16 garments for the richest people in the world. We're trying to really have an impact on the environment. In order to do that, you've got to be at scale and you've got to be at a rational price point. So those are some of the things that we have to do. So as when you bring a new material out, so DuPont Serona was a completely new polymer 16 years ago. Just mm -hmm. like Tom Dean said, it's so important to work through the value chain with everybody all the way up to the brand. So when that designer asked that question that Thomas Cedas said, said, hey, can I, get this in all these different colors and all these different weights, you have to have an answer for that. And so as an example, one, one of the things we've done is we've established a preferred mill program called Common Thread so that if somebody wants to find a fabric that contains the bio-based Serona, they can go to this list of hundreds of different mills that are all experts in using it. It's that kind of thing we're gonna have to do working together through the whole chain to make change happen. Mm -hmm. The importance of all these new material companies is being sustainable is their starting point, as opposed to the materials, the incumbent materials that, that all the industries are using. Sustainability was never a thought. It was just about, you know, it was about aesthetics. It was about performance, et cetera, et cetera. But these new material companies, that's their starting point is sustainability and renewable and hopefully biodegradable because uh, we know that compostable is too complicated and we know that recycling doesn't even happen all the time you know so anyway that's 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 puts them in a good position to, to mike's mike's point is um when you're transferring something from the lab to to a customer really understanding your customer is 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 difficult because um for example just in, in the in the leather industry uh, like once I started really investigating it, like the tannery component the, is, is, is such a huge component and the machines they actually have. And so it takes a lot of customer, customer development for these new technologies to be truly drop in. And um, if I am a large uh, fashion brand moving tons of product, um, I want this material, but I, I, I don't want to change my operations, right? And we're, we're very aware of, of, of how supply chain is, is just so fragile. And so it really is going through this, yes, we can make it in a lab, but making it in a lab and dropping it in to a high volume production supply chain are kind of two separate things. And so I do think yeah. that there is this time of adapting the technology to actually be scale ready. Um, and, and that's a thing that, that, uh, that is not trivial and takes, takes some time. And I would add, I think Gaetano's point is really critical in the textile or fashion industry because one polymer, let's say like DuPont Serona, becomes zillions of kinds of fibers 
that becomes zillions of kind of fabrics that are knit or woven and treated in all these different ways. And it's a very extended supply chain. So it's very difficult. The other big industry we're in is carpet, where basically we sell the polymer to a company that spins the fiber, makes the carpet and sells the carpet. Much more compressed, way easier. <laughs> in the fashion world, the, the value chain is, is fragmented and it's extended. And so it really is a, a real challenge for everybody involved to work together through the whole chain. Yeah. yeah. But that also, Mike, presents, a, presents an, an opportunity because one great thing about, uh, about these biomaterials is that they're grown, right? And, um, and they're grown in, um, uh, in, in a way in a lot of times that they don't need as much processing around it. So um, there is this amazing possibility of actually contracting the supply chain and having it onshored. Because the other piece of this that I think is very top of mind around supply chains is fashion is so distributed. I mean, where you get your raw materials to where the textile mills are, to where like the final assembly, to where the market is, you're talking maybe it's four completely separate continents, right? And, and that presents massive problems for fashion houses when they need to buy these materials and lock them in, mm -hmm. right? Uh, way in advance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, which, and, and so there is an opportunity, I don't think we're there yet, but there is this massive opportunity on biomaterials to actually grow the, the, the material and finish it right next to your final assembly, which might be in market, right? So there's also this, this component of biomaterials that might uh, truncate the supply chain uh, in a really, really nice way and massively reduce transportation costs. And for on, on the fashion side, it would allow them to really kind of lock in um, their um, lock in their materials. And just like fast fashion is really demand driven, imagine if the input materials could also be kind of fast supplied. Um, and so that's kind of an, an area of opportunity, I think is, is going to be um, really interesting over, over, over the next couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think I found in, in my reporting that that aspect of kind of nearshoring supply chains in general in terms of material production um, has become even more of an issue, um, you know, with, with supply chain issues, with geopolitical tensions. It, it's something that, you know, retailers are definitely putting front of mind. And I think going back to things, obviously, we've mentioned a couple of the different sustainable kind of materials and biomaterials already. Um, but maybe we could get a few other examples of what kind of biomaterials exist on the scene right now and why are they more sustainable alternatives to what is out there at the moment? So I, when I introduced myself, I forgot to say that I currently work for, I said I had a fashion background, but I currently work for um, a nonprofit called Material Innovation Initiative, um, we call it MII. And so that has given me a window into hundreds of startup companies that are creating the next generation of materials. Um, we've seen most of the focus be on recreating leathers. Uh, so literally 50% of the, the new companies out there for materials are in the leather development, um, the new leathers. And they are mycelium grown, they are fermentation, they are um, plant-based. Uh, that's actually a big portion of them are plant-based. Um, and there's, um, there's actually cultivated cells that are coming. Uh, someone is, a few people are currently working on cultivating cells, uh, which has great, great promise, of course, to have all the performance and characteristics and look of an actual animal skin. So, um, but we've also seen progress and development on um, wools and silks. And the, things that, the thing that really excites me about um, replacing wool and silk is, or, or I should say the experimentation around recreating wool and silk is that that's also going to lead to replacing polyester and not having to have these PU fibers and not have to have acrylic and not have, and so all these things that are shedding, you know, um, shedding microfibers around that are, that are PU based, you know, we can do away with that. And then also, also it takes away the pressure on animals. Um, and that's really important to us at MII is to not have so much pressure on animals and the farming that happens, because as we know, it's not just the animals, but it's also the land that is being destroyed because of all this overgrazing and just the, um, the mass, the mass, mass, massive amounts of animals that are being um, raised. So, and that's another, which also brings us back to you had mentioned before about um, these next gen materials and 
And, you know, how do you, if they're, they're not all sustainable necessarily because they might have some PU, but we would also say that, well, if you only, if this new material for leather, for instance, has 10, 20% PU, you could compare that to what it takes to raise a cow and, and what it takes to get a cow to, I hate to say it, but like slaughter and then the tent and the, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of resources, a lot of water. So it is more sustainable with these new materials, but everyone, the goal for everyone is to have zero PU um, in their materials. Yeah, what I would add to that, I think we've heard already the the way that bio-based materials can affect fashion is really diverse. So it's everything from the basic ingredients being plant-based rather than petroleum-based at, at one end, all the way to what you know Gaetano and Tomasina mentioned about where you could actually grow, let's say, a leather that looks exactly like it to the shape you want it to be. And yeah. there's everything in between. And so I think there's different ways to get yourself into that value chain. Um, one of the things that I, I'm amazed by is how many different brilliant people are out there doing so many different interesting things and taking very different approaches. The, our approach in my company has mostly been on that, how do we start the whole thing off with ingredients that are plant-based with way lower environmental footprints? Because again, parenthetically, being plant-based is nice, but what really also matters is what's the climate impact. And so mm -hmm. we look very carefully at life cycle analyses and stuff like that. So we, we start from that perspective. How do you start the whole process of creating these wonderful garments all the way back at the beginning with the basic ingredients being plant-based and much more sustainable? But other people are doing other things that inserting in lots of different places. And so, for example, um, you talked about animal-based animal products. One of the big successes we had in the last year was with Stella McCartney with um, replacing fur. And this beautiful faux fur that has this incredible softness, people love it. Um, and it's made using this plant-based Serona um, rather than, you know, obviously uh, regular fur. So things like that are different. So there's so many different diverse ways you can create this kind of value and have impact. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the innovators who are using agricultural waste, stuff that would normally just go into a landfill, you know, and create its own methane. <laughs> so that they're, I think that's just fascinating, uh, you know, from plants to, tomatoes to fruit to olives, you know, it's, it's happening all over the world. People have like really gone ham on the agricultural waste in a good way. So. And one, uh, one thing I wanted to bring back, and, and this is something as an investor that I'm always looking for is you will always get uh, uh, some early adopters that are willing to sacrifice a little bit of quality and to pay a little bit more based on kind of their aspirational view of kind of like where they want to put their money. Um, but you, you reach a limit where you do have to move past that to mass market. Um, and the, the technology holy grail is better and less expensive, right? Mm -hmm. is, is like, how do you use technology to get to that point? And um, I, I'm a huge optimist. And one of the things I'm the most excited about and, and to, uh, to, to the previous point, Mycelium is a place that we've spent um, a lot of time investigating. And full disclosure, we're, we're investors in, um, in Mycoworks, which is one of the... Uh, which is one of the, the, the um, mycelium leather companies, is that when you think about leather, um, right now we're all trying to get to parity, right? We want it to perform like leather, look like leather, feel like leather, et cetera. But with these bio platforms, you're, you're, you're able to iterate and improve these materials at a very fast pace compared to improving an animal. Like it has taken us thousands of years to kind of cultivate and, and, and domesticate and kind of grow the cow to our purpose, right? But that's a very slow process. With anything that's plant-based or, or fungus-based, that iteration cycle is very, very high. And so you can imagine a, a place where uh, you can get even better leather, meaning it's even softer, it's even more durable, it's even more scratch resistant, it's fireproof, it's more waterproof. And so one really great thing about these materials is that um, I think right now, as an industry, we're very focused on parity meaning that we wanna swap out these materials um, it, it, from a sustainability perspective. But um, the, the innovation cycle that we're starting and all of these brilliant people that are thinking about this, their curve is not gonna stop at equal. They're going to continue going. And so there's also this massive opportunity for these biomaterials to actually be better, right? That to perform in ways that we don't even know about um, mm -hmm. that will lead to completely new yeah. types of, of functionality. 
uh, for the fashion industry. And so it's not really just about playing offense. I think we should really view science and these innovators as playing a, um, a, a, a little bit, not defense, but offense as well and making materials that are even better. Yeah, definitely. And I've talked to MycoWorks before and they've definitely said that before, that it's just something that they're looking to, you know, iterate past, you know, whatever leather is at now for it to become better, essentially. And, you know, when you're talking about the impact of, of how many things are close to your skin, I don't think it's it's kind of pointed out enough how many chemicals are in contact with your skin, that, you know, on a consistent level. And I think biomaterials have still kind of yet to, to sell themselves on that aspect. I think, mm -hmm. you know, considering all of the carcinogens and other aspects that you talk about when it comes to food, when you talk about, you know, skin absorption, it's it's kind of similar too. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I know it's definitely something that stood out to me when, when I was writing about it. I definitely think it's something that needs to be covered a lot more in the fashion space. I think something that's really interesting, um, Thompson, that you mentioned before is that kind of role of waste. Um, and the process of, of the kind of end of life solutions for these materials, because I know a lot of the times you're talking about, you know, biomaterials as to where they're coming from. But it's also important to look at, you know, where they end up, um, obviously, in terms of biobased materials, what is their place, I would say, in their circular economy? Um, well, I think, are you speaking about how are the companies themselves viewing it or how do we look at it as a as a, a holistic thing? I think probably more holistically, I think brands at the moment are still, you know, as you said, iterating when it comes to biomaterials, they are considering it when it comes to end of life, but it's more about the, the big picture. What are biomaterials hoping to bring to that end of life process that isn't currently there? I would say ease of, um, ease of end of life, because right now, you know, the things that are being talked about is like, there's a brand take back, the brands will take it back and they'll recycle it for you or they'll repair it for you, of course, which is a nice thing. Um, but I don't know that the consumer is going to do that. You know, I don't know. I don't really have faith in the consumer to work that hard. Consumers need it to be really easy. You know, we have, as consumers, we have a narrow bandwidth. Um, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of scary stuff. Um, so I think the, the startup companies or the innovators need to make it easy. And so therefore, if their materials are renewable of the earth, they're, you know, safe, non-toxic, then they should naturally biodegrade would be the goal. But that's a tricky one also, because you also want it to, you also want somebody to be able to own it for their lifetime, right? It shouldn't start disintegrating after five years or 10 years. So it's the performance aspect is really, really uh, tricky. And that's why these things are taking a long time to get to market, to commercialize them. But I think that, again, the same thing I said before about the starting place for these innovative companies is to be sustainable. They're also looking at the end of life. Um, some of them, you know, that's, that's not happening in their first five years necessarily, but they know what's there. They know they have to address it. So I think that's what the plant-based aspect is so good. Um, or um, even the microbial is not harmful. You know, and these things are just not harmful to the planet. So they're safe. Uh, it, it's about how people combine them though. It, it, what's brought us down in the incumbent fashion world with materials like polyesters, for instance, is that they, they get blended. So these fibers get twisted with other fibers and then you can't recycle them. And of course there are people who are working on separating those fibers chemically uh, to, so that they can do something with it. Um, so that is happening, but that's also slow. And unlike Europe, where the government, you know, uh, supports these sorts of businesses, um, it's all left to private businesses here for the most part, um, in terms of textile recycling, that is. So, yeah, I think I, I, I do believe that all these material companies are thinking about that and they understand the biodegradability aspect of it as being hugely important. And brands are starting to step up slowly um with take backs but it's just a few of them you know and are they really going to recycle them i don't know you know are they set up to do that yet i don't know um yeah i think it's a question that we definitely still have to ask and you're right i would say that at the moment it is still quite a lot of work to get around to you know giving items back and even more so it's even more work for brands to partner with um, organizations who are actually going to be responsible with their recycling and do it properly or 
better still turn it into something um, into something new. Um, Mike, what was your experience with, um, I know that Tomsi mentioned something about longevity um, yeah. with items. What, what was your experience there in terms of the brands you've worked with? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, um, there's a, a lot of what Tom sees, there's a lot in there to unpack. So I think the, the, the first thing that, that when we look at this is um, the, the best thing we can do as a materials company, I think what designers can do is, is exactly what Thomasina said, extend the longevity of garments, right? So one of the biggest problems we have is if you look in people's closets, at least in the developed world, they have 10 times more clothes than they really need to wear. And partly that's, that's an emotional thing. People want to get new stuff, but partly it's that their garments don't last. And so I'll give you a, a, a very concrete example. So we talked before about stretch fabrics. Everybody wants it, yoga pants, you know, stretch in your in what you're wearing. Um, the way that's been traditionally done for the last 40 years is with spandex. And spandex is a polyurethane fiber. It's sort of like a rubber band. And over time, when you wash it, the rubber band doesn't stretch anymore. And so you have to throw your yoga pants out because they don't stretch. Oh, and by the way, the 3% of that spandex fiber that you put into a fabric makes that, let's say, cotton fabric non-recyclable anymore because the polyurethane gets in the way. So, um, can you replace that? The first thing is, can we make these garments last longer? And so, again, I, I really loved what Gitana said about, let's not settle for almost as good or just as good, let's settle for better. So if you take this, you know, for example, our Serona polymer, you can make a fiber that's stretchy and that stretchy is more like a spring and that stretch will last and last and last. And so then the, the stretch will last and the garment will last. So I think that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second piece of it is, again, we have to be gatekeepers, all of us in the industry, on what kind of, of carbon are we allowing into, the, um, into our circular economy. That's what really determines what the, the climate change impact is going to be. And then finally, I think we talk a lot about end of life. We've got to be making choices every time we make it. You know, Thomas said earlier on, things are constantly changing in the fashion world, right? And so there's lots and lots of opportunities. The good news about that is there's lots of opportunities to in introduce incremental improvements. So every single time we make a choice, we've got to be making a choice to introduce something that, for example, enables recycling rather than stopping it. So like I, like I mentioned earlier, that's something that a, um, a material company and, and, a, and a brand need to partner on. You know, the biodegradability one for me is very tricky, ex exactly for the reason Thomasine said, is that um, it's very, very hard right now to say, I want this garment to last 20 years, but then when I snap my fingers, I want it to biodegrade. Almost impossible, right? Yeah. So um, I, I think we're going to have to think hard about that problem. I'm not so sure. For me, anytime a garment gets out into the environment where it has to biodegrade, we've done something wrong. We ought to be keeping these things in the circle and getting value back from them. So for me, biodegradability is sort of a fail-safe when something, when they, when the garbage isn't collected correctly, when people don't dispose of things correctly, then you have to count on biodegradability. It's not mm -hmm. the best way to get value back from uh, an existing garment. So I think that's going to be a, a debate we're going to have to have as an industry. And so one, one thing to add to that is the other piece of this innovation is actually not only on the material, but on business model, right? Now that we're trying to create more kind of continuous loop systems, and uh, uh, a good example is cars. Electric cars, your relationship because the car is going to last much longer. And those batteries are so uh, expensive that um, the relationship you're going to have to your car company is going to be much more circular, where they want that battery back because it's so expensive to get the material out, to put it, to reintroduce it into, into, the, um, into the economy. And I use that as an example because a lot of OEMs are grappling with who are they as an identity in their relationship with their customer because the relationship is changing. And I would say that a lot of companies from the food industry to the fashion industry are going to have to start changing how they view their customers and how they view the life cycle of these garments to be in a place where they offer um, a, uh, an upgrade or you can exchange it or you can get kind of a deposit back and start changing the business model around this stuff as well. Because I think you're going to need changes to the material, but you're actually going to have to have changes to the economic relationship between companies and their customers to really kind of create a cohesive uh, uh, sustainability kind of model. I think lots of industries are going to have to change their, their, their business, how they do business to, to Mike's point, kind of introduce this fact that this garment might be just out there for forever, just in kind of a, of a lot of a kind of different methodologies 
than just going into a junkyard for the car or just, just going into a landfill for clothes. Yeah, well, definitely. And that's the problem. Expensive clothes aren't going into landfill. Expensive, <laughs> well-made, high-quality fabrics, those clothes are not going into landfills. It's the cheap ones. And, and that's the cheap clothes of what have put us in this, this cycle of overconsumption for the last 20 years. The mass overconsumption, which has meant this mass overproduction, right? The, the amount of production that's going on. So, you know, certain companies ordering 200,000 units, half a million units of a hoodie of, you know, 2 million units of a legging, you know, that's just mass production. And then, and be, and then, then they get the price way down, right? So there's volume pricing with these things. And that's how consumers get to buy things for $10, $15, $20, which 50 years ago, you couldn't buy that, that pair of jeans or that dress for what you're buying it for today. So that's just not right. <laughs> so that's where I struggle sometimes. It's like all these great new materials that are being uh, created. I know the appeal is for the high-end brands. And, and that's great because high-end brands affect and there's a trickle-down effect that, you know, that all the mass brands want to get into and get in on that action. But right now the high-end brands are not, they're not causing the landfill problems anyway. They might, mm-hmm. they might have other issues, but they're not, that's not, that's not where overconsumption is happening. And, and those things are not going in. Those are getting passed down through generations or they're being resold, et cetera. Yeah. And that resale market is huge, but you're right. Like the the problem area still remains around mass, um, you know, cheap and kind of lesser quality materials, and they're being passed down through through fast fashion. And obviously, I don't know, um, Gaetano, if you have any kind of um, experience here when it comes to scaling companies to focus on that fast fashion market. But I'm assuming that, you know, that scale aspect is, is going to be the wall between, you know, mass adoption um, or not, essentially. That's exactly right. And, and to, 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 to the point, the previous point, um, a lot of these folks are targeting high end first. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's that high end, you can kind of pass that along to the consumer and the percentage of that finished goods cost that is the material is, is much lower. Um, and that kind of uh, premium down model is in a lot of ways how technology works. If you think of, uh, you know, a Tesla, right? They started with the Roadster and they're making their way down because they can they can kind of cover a lot of their costs with that, that added margin. I would say that from a scaling perspective, there is a significant gap. The petrochemical industry is a behemoth and they have been optimizing plastics for a very long time. The cost of polyester or like, or, or faux leather is so low that yeah. it is really, really, really hard. And, and I've, I've seen all kinds of different materials and their economic models. None of them really have a cogent way to get to that cost today, mm-hmm. right? They can, that like for, for real materials like a wool or a silk or leather, I think they will get there, right? But the, 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 the kind of the petrochemicals are just really, 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 really difficult uh, to get to um, at, at that massive scale to the point that I don't know if that is uh, where they're even targeting, um, at least not for now. And for, for example, if you have to grow anything, it's just really hard to get to that cost. Um, even when you think about um, uh, a fermentation um, or, or kind of a cellular based like just like the fermentation process is just so much more expensive, right? That is the one that I think is the farthest away from, from really getting there on the unit economics on textiles is, is the, um, the kind of the, the cellular uh, aspect of just kind of growing leather or growing, you know, whatever, whatever you want. I think that's going to take a long time. But in answering your question, um, that is an area that I have not seen us approach cost. Um, mm-hmm. is, is really on the, the polyesters and, uh, and, and the, the faux leathers, which is, uh, to, 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 the, to, to the kind of the point, is the problem, right? Is the, 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 the fast fashion is, and those kind of materials are, are a lot of, of that issue. Um, and again, I think going back to, to business model, um, you know, you can spend 15 bucks on a pair of jeans, but, you know, I have some pairs of jeans that I had like, like since college that were more expensive, right? So in terms of the lifetime, I've saved money. You know, and so there is there there is a component of this that's going to have to be business model uh, change 
um, as well as, as, as kind of scientific change. I think you're going to have to have both of those things because humans spending a lot of money on a lot of stuff um, in general is not sustainable, right? I, like, okay. like, like by itself, like, you know, we need less stuff in a certain way. So um, I think there's going to have to be a comb combination of consumer behavior change as well as te technology change. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think governments have a role to play here. And, you know, as Gaetano was talking about, why are PET and polypropylene and all these other materials so cheap? Well, they're cheap because it's a tragedy, the common situation, right? These The, the companies that yes. have these fossil-based things and then process them and put them out into the world are not responsible for the environmental damage that's associated with this. There's no tax on that carbon. And so I think actually Europe is, is, is really very seriously considering this. And I think this is the most practical way to really affect this is um, these things are frankly too cheap. They're, and the reason they're too cheap is because they don't, in, they don't recognize the cost of, of, the, of the, the, the stuff they do to the environment. So if governments can put a very simply, just make it a, a more level playing field, right? For those of us that are trying to do either the mycelium leather that you know, Gaetano talked about or what we're doing with our BioPDO and Serona products, if, if, if we can be competing on a more level playing field, so these guys have to take into account, when I say these guys, I mean the petrochemical industry, um, the cost that they bring, breaking that up will cause all these things, good things to happen. Recycled products will be more cost effective. Bio-based materials will be more cost effective. And people will also have to think twice before they buy that super cheap pair of whatever, because it's not going to be so cheap anymore. There's going to be more cost built into it. All those things are, I think, where we have to head. I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about what's going on. I love these Levi's commercials that are out right now, encouraging people to change that fast fashion mindset, you know, encouraging people to say, you know, buy the little black dress, buy the classic pair of jeans, and they don't have to be haute couture. They don't have to be way up in the stratosphere in terms of price point, but decent quality, buy a good quality thing and hold on to it. That's the mindset that consumers are going to have to bring. All those things have to come together, I think, to change this way over consumption. I loved what Thomasina said about that because I really do mm -hmm. believe exactly what it is. People have way more clothes than they need. And you might be surprised your material supplier say that, right? Because that's my market. I also live on the earth, right? And so we have to really think about how can we make the right kind of garments for people to solve the, need, the, the needs they have, but without creating all this excess that we just don't need. I want to put an exclamation point on what Mike just said is that um, we pay for it in consumers, in our taxes and in our healthcare costs, right? Like these things go into the junk, they go into the atmosphere, et cetera. Um, they should be more expensive because someone else is footing the bill. Right. And the one that's putting the bill is us, right, yeah. as, as, as consumers. And so, um, you know, there, there has been uh, immense success in this type of, 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 of kind of either subsidy or, or tax and kind of, kind of shifting behavior. I mean, that's kind of why solar has gotten to the, the, the point it is. That's why EVs, I think, are, are actually hitting that inflection point is like if, if the government had not intervened when it came to photovoltaic cells and wind and, and electric cars, right? With like subsidies, we would not be here, right? Like, and so, and so there is a huge uh, a piece to pay of evening the playing field in regards to who actually is paying for the cost because the cost exists. It's just not, they're just not the ones paying for it. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And just some quick uh, points here. Obviously a lot of the petrochemical industries do use um, their kind of plastics as as like a waste offset because it is essentially a byproduct of um of their industries which makes it ever more cheaper um it's like one for nothing right they're just giving everybody their waste to make new fibers from filament you know like they're just like making more money i, yeah, I would say even even more extremely which is this that when you're in the petrochemical business again i come from dupont right <laughs> a barrel of oil comes out of the ground right maybe 10 percent of it today by volume gets turned into plastic and the rest of it gets burned and creates all the fossil-based carbon that's creating the climate change issues. But that 10% creates something like, uh, this number might not be exactly right, but 30 to 50% of the profit from that barrel of oil. So every time we select a um, petro-based material, plastic, into, into fashion or any other application, not only are we does that choice have implications, but the choice also helps the profitability of the fossil fuel industry to continue to you know, make that cheaper to hold down alternatives. So really every time we make a choice, whether we pick a bio-based 
you know, renewably based material or a Petra based material, we're impacting that whole decision process. It's really important. Yeah, definitely. And obviously you mentioned, you know, raising prices for, for petrochemicals as a way of leveling the, the playing field. And we've talked about legislation um, as a possible way of also kind of changing the way that fashion system works. What other kind of support systems or, you know, technologies can be in place to, to help those emerging startups or to help those companies who are trying to, you know, wrestle away that control from, you know, a, a vastly plastic fashion industry? I would say money <laughs> to expedite the material companies. It's money um, you know, to help them get to the scalability factor, to help them be able to hire one more scientist, uh, whether it's material scientist or an environmental uh, study scientist so they can work on LCAs. Um, but I know that, so Gaetano, and you know, obviously I, I went to a panel discussion last night with, with Microworks, with uh, Sophia from Microworks and um, that, and yeah, I know that they, you're opening up the plant in South Carolina and that's, yeah. it's not only huge for the facility, but it's huge, you know, metaphorically speaking, it's just, it's, you know, going to be just a massive operation. Um, so but it that, is, but, it is. You know, they got a lot of money to do that. And, and so that's what everybody needs. They need money, space, time, you know, more brain power. Yeah. And I think, I think there's reason to be, to be optimistic. And, and before, you know, we were t I was talking to, uh, to uh, Thomasina and, and, and Mike about this earlier is that now is a good time because there's a, a lot of different factors in, in this, in this, in this kind of value chain that, that are working in conjunction. The first is we're getting really good at the science stuff. I mean, like the, the, the last 20 years, um, what's happened in terms of processing power and our understanding of the natural environment um, is really expanding and all through kind of bio materials, um, aerospace, power, et cetera. We are at this inflection point where I think we're going to see this explosion of innovation in the physical world. I think we've done a lot in the digital world over yeah. the last 20 years. And now the physical, it's the physical world's turn. And I think we're, we're starting to see that. So there's just a lot of innovation and a lot of smart people. That are, are that that are kind of creating breakthroughs um, that that is helping in terms of our our the, our toolkit, right? So that's kind of one piece of it. On the flip side, consumer demand is shifting, where people are more interested in in this stuff. Especially, uh, you know, as as a millennial, I think we do okay. But the you know the gener the Gen Z, I think, actually is even better than yeah. than than millennials in terms of really being interested in regards to how their decisions affect, affect sustainability. So there's a kind of, there's this demand pull and a supply push. And in the middle, you have the, um, the companies that are responding to their, their, their customers and, and also understanding innovation and not being left behind. So I think they're taking the phone calls from the startups, they're taking the meetings, they have innovation teams uh, in, in, in these large corporate uh, companies that are helping. And then the third piece is the money, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think at this point, uh, the large institutional money is going more towards uh, sustainability. And so you kind of have this, this, this great, hopefully flywheel of innovation, creating better products that consumers like more, that kind of creates more demand from consumers that then kind of increases the, the capital allocated to this that continues to increase the, the, the quality of the product. And you need to start that flywheel for this to work. And I would say, from, from the perspective of, of, the, of, of the investor, um, it is really time for us to allocate our resources to these types of problems, right? We need to, we need both financial and intellectual resources. Like at the end of the day, I don't think we need more, like another credit card or another app, uh, but do we need to figure out what we're gonna do with cows and leather? Yes, we do. Do we need to figure out what we're gonna do with petrochemicals and, and, all, and plastics all over the supply chain? Absolutely. And so I am an optimist in that we are hitting kind of an inflection point where we are going to make significant technical progress to address some of these some of these issues. Yeah, I think yeah. we're in the middle of the next industrial revolution, right? Absolutely. It's, we're we're in the middle of it right now, and this and this time it'll be a clean one. You know, <laughs> thank God. Um, but yeah, but I think it's all hands on deck. And you're right that technology has moved the needle so far, um, so quickly, I should say, more importantly, it's, an, it's enabled the scientists to go so much faster than they would have been able to go 20 or 30 years ago. So it, it, is, it is happening. It's happening like in the next 10 years. 
I feel like it's going to look very different. Like the landscape in terms of what we're buying at stores or in our cars or at you know home goods, I think it's going to be a very different landscape. Yeah, I, I want to add one thing. I think, I, first of all, I love this discussion. Love it, love it. <laughs> it was just said, I'm, I'm like jumping out of my chair. Um, the piece that there's one piece as a guy that's been trying to do this for many, many years now, almost 20 years, that, that I think I would add to this. And, and it's for the audience that's hopefully listening to this forum. Um, people at brands have a tremendous role to play here, right? So Gaetano talked about there's lots of push, lots of money and people that have great ideas. And then consumers are finally really saying, I got to have this. One of the, and I hate to say this, but one of the biggest barriers has been typically what brands would say is, yes, I want to be able to tell a sustainability story, but it can't cost one penny more than what I paid for before. So if I'm typically, today I'm buying polyester and you want me to buy your Serona, that's great, but through the system, it can't cost me anymore. Or they would say, um, all the, the cost to change the value chain or make some production changes to adapt this new material, you all need to absorb those and give it to me at exactly the same cost. It's just not okay. Because yeah, no. brands in our society have a huge amount of power and they're really the gatekeepers between the technology makers and the technology takers who are the consumers. And so I think I'm seeing some tremendously positive changes in brands, but it's happening too slow. That's the place where if we want to make things happen much faster, the brands need to be pounding their fists on the table. It's not just the sustainability manager at this brand that's doing this. It's the sourcing person is also has in their mindset that their job is not to get the cheapest price. Their job is to solve these problems and make their, make their brand better by making it more sustainable. That's a piece that I think we could do a lot better as a fashion industry. And so it's helpful that there's people listening to this that have those kind of jobs. Um, yeah. That's a big piece that I, I would love to see added on to. Yeah. And another another component of that is also, um, and I love what you said because at the at the boardroom level, they say the right things, right? But it's the procurement manager that actually, you know, is is the, is the, is the gatekeeper. That's exactly that's the and decision. So, maker. yeah, and so and so one of the one of the things there is, um, um, you know, there's there's a lot of talk now about the SEC kind of requiring disclosures around these things. Um, in terms of in, in, in terms of financial disclosures. And I think once companies actually have to disclose how they're doing things, um, I think that pressure that comes from the big institutional investors, mutual funds, et cetera, around ESG and the board, um, it becomes part of reporting, right? And as soon as someone's um, decisions are highlighted, both on the financial side, but also on this kind of car- carbon side, and all of these big companies have like net zero pledges for like 2030, right? So at one point you have to get there. And so hopefully this kind of pressure to Mike's point at the decision maker point, the procurement point, supply chain point is, is kind of tipped over with, with kind of added pressure coming from, from, from above that the you know, regulators can help with. Yeah, that is, I have to, again, back to Mike's point about brands and not wanting to pay a penny more. It's absolutely true um, because margin, they don't want to sacrifice any margin. And they're so afraid the consumers won't show up if they raise the cost of their goods, $5, $10, 15 They're so afraid they'll lose sales and then it affects their margin and their inventories, et cetera. And I would say, I feel like, you know, and this is just, you know, probably maybe I'm too optimistic, but I feel like cost of goods will have to go up. The prices are going to have to go up a little bit, but maybe the, maybe the people at the very top make a little less. You know, right now, in, in historically speaking, we've never seen such a disparate income level between people who sell the product on the floor or making the product at the factories and the people who are at the very top, the presidents, the CEOs, the CEOs. There, there's so much disparity there. Um, and we see that across many industries. But if they can make a little less, you know, maybe the prices don't even have to go up or maybe they go up marginally. I mean, you know, just a tiny bit. So. And that's that's like a real cultural thing for brands to have to to reckon with. Yeah, and again, I think it's about the alternative because again, there's there's two yeah. problems. One is that the bio-based or the more sustainable alternatives maybe are too expensive or more expensive than what people expect. But it's yeah. also that the current things are way too cheap. So yeah. why well, I really believe if you want to if you want to do one thing, none, there's no magic bullets, but that putting some kind of a tax onto these non-sustainable products so that, as Gaetano very eloquently said, the real cost is, is reflected in it. Um, that's going to, then people, their alternative is going to be, I need to buy 
less clothes. I can't buy as many. And I want to buy higher quality. And I'm going to pay for the sustainable ones because the non-sustainable ones aren't so much cheaper. I think right. it's a, to me, that's my one, you know, one thing I harp on. That's the one thing a government yeah. can, I think really make a difference. And mm. what one kind of one kind of last point on on, on this is um, I don't think you will have to sacrifice on the price for forever. Right. I think at one point it does get to parity based on volume. So it really is about the time between today until that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, maybe 20 years from now, where you reach parity, that you're going to have to have some help along, along the way for speed. I think naturally we would get there, but it would be great to not get there at like, you know, 20, you know, 90 and instead to get there, you know, at 2030, for example. And so I do think that there will be a path with scale to get the prices lower to, to Thomasine's point, the scale scales, everything, right? So if a big, you know, if a, I don't want to name names, but if a big fashion, you know, fast fashion or, or, or athletic company said, you know what, now for this, we are just going to go with kind of biomaterials that in itself, that volume in itself for the industry would lower the cost mm -hmm. because now mm -hmm. someone can go out and build a factory. And not only can they build a factory, because they have these offtake agreements, they can build that factory with cheaper debt, right? So it's actually, it, it becomes cheaper. Like the value chain is more expensive, not just because of the science, but it's more expensive because of like the interest points on equipment financing, right? That's kind of what you're dealing with. And so you really do need to kind of break this and have some of these major brands make not token orders for like, you know, a small collection. They yeah. need to have this be main collection, global volume, because mm -hmm. that in itself will reduce the, 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 the cost of the stuff. Because then mm -hmm. someone can go out and finance a factory to build it, right? Yeah. And there will always be a chicken and egg on scale. And I know that I'm using um, uh, uh, other examples, but um, I think batteries and EVs are exactly that. We're starting to hit an inflection point on battery costs. That's why the adoption is going up is because they don't cost 100 grand anymore. Right. And mm -hmm. you just need to hit the scale inflection point or else you're never going to get to the prices. So yeah, I don't want to I don't want to like project that it will always be more expensive. Right. It is more expensive now. I think we can get to parity, but it's yeah, just going to take a little bit of work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to just to interject some optimism here. Right. So, again, the our flagship factory uses fermentation from corn based sugar to make a chemical called PDO. And we're at 77,000 ton capacity now per year. And it used to be we were substantially more expensive than the sort of petro product we had to compete with, which is called BDO. And when oil was $50 a barrel, we weren't competitive. As we sit here today with oil at $100 a barrel, we're at scale and we're absolutely on price, even with no carbon tax, absolutely competitive. It can be done. It we're doing it. It can be done. You know, Cerona is a, is a uh, you know, it's a premium over... PET, because PET is the cheapest stuff in the world, but it's not a, a over nylon. It's like right in there with normal scaled materials. So it can be done. We're doing it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the difference here might be just that, that volume aspect and that mass scale adoption. I know that when it comes to metrics, you know, for a lot of brands, growth and profit takes priority. Um, do you think that maybe there might be some other metrics that brands could use to inform, you know, their business strategy going forward in the next couple of years while that shift is happening? I think there will be legislation where uh, companies have to start reporting their carbon impact because mm -hmm. it is a cost, right? It's a cost to all of us, right? So it's, it's a, it's a, it, and so um, looking at a comp company's profits and then looking at their kind of carbon load on like we're paying for it right again like the government mm -hmm. and us as taxpayers are paying for that right and so um look looking at that kind of reporting around the carbon impact where these things are sourced um we have we, we're talking a lot about carbon um i think internally at, at on, on my team we think water is next in terms of people starting to really look at what happens to water because that's not even talked about and it's insane what some industries do in terms of water um, and so, um, I do think that, uh, we need to start looking at these metrics. Are they going to trump profit, um, uh, and, and, and kind of revenue and margins? Uh, no. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's important for us to start looking at that because to Mike's point that we're reiterating, there is a cost, right? It's just, they're not the ones paying for it. 
right? So their mm-hmm. margins aren't really their margins, right? Like in terms of carbon emissions, you're paying for it for your for healthcare. You're paying for it for you know uh, what's happening with climate and kind of and and storm surge and wildfires. Like we're paying for it, right? And so mm-hmm. it really is starting to connect those dots. Um, mm-hmm. Is 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 really important. And I think I completely agree with Thomasina's uh, point where brands need to start um, treating their customers with a little bit more respect in regards to like how intelligent they are in, in a lot of ways, right? What we're talking about in terms, of, in terms of these materials affecting the margin, it's not going from $10 to $15, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that is kind of the scale that we're talking about. It is going to be um, not right now, but in like five years, it's going to be marginal. Um, and I think some brands need to just like kind of put their foot down and say like, no more, this is kind of how we're going to do things. And that is going to be, in my view, a competitive advantage to them versus other brands. Yeah. Yeah. They just, I, I, they just have to, to have the courage to do it. Yeah. And the way that they can really create that advantage is when someone buys an article of clothing, you know, they want it for warmth or whatever it may be, but there's a huge emotional component to that, right? How does this garment make mm-hmm. me feel? And if you can educate the consumer to understand that when you chose this garment, not only is it comfortable and keeps you warm, whatever, but it also has this fantastic environmental footprint that goes with it, that emotional benefit comes. So I really do think a lot of the, what the brands have to do is educate their consumers so that they can recognize that benefit and put that into the, the, the price that they're charging the garment. They're already charging for emotion. <laughs> they're already charging for how does this garment make me feel? Just make sustainability a part of that and a lot of these problems go away. Right now, it's, it's sort of, here's the garment, here's what it's all about. Oh, and by the way, here's the sustainability story. No, if you integrate it in there, you create that emotional value. That's how the brands can economically afford to do more sustainable things. Yeah, I would also say that, um, back to your questions, Zofi, about uh, brand strategies. I know during the mm-hmm. pandemic or during like the height of the shutdown, a lot, and everybody's supply chains were busted, a lot of brands were talking about um, doing small batches so not full-on production runs, but small batches, maybe more frequent drops. Um, I don't know if that equals out or, or becomes the same as a big batch, but um, but smaller batches, so they would have less inventory backed up. There was also a lot of talk about partnering with mills and partnering with factories because brands typically never do that. And historically, they haven't done that. There are rare exceptions, of course, where a brand will buy gray, like 10,000 yards of grayish from somebody because it's one of their staple fabrics or something like that. But um, but we didn't see partnering and, and factories and mills on the other side of the world were stuck with all this stuff, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because of the ship. And so I do think to, now, now we have today with all these uh, next-gen material companies, this is the perfect time for brands to partner with these next-gen material companies to make a difference and to be, um, to say that they're really modern, right? I just feel like this is this is modern life now, right? To, to invest in these new materials is modern. Everything else is not modern um, and it's, it's antiquated and it's not sustainable in many ways. So um, yeah, so anyway, so I think that the partnering is really important that the brands need to um, take on. And just also Gitano was mentioning about, um, you know, doing, Capsule collections is not really going to cut it, but I will mm. say for any big brand, and I agree totally. But I also think that they're testing it right. Like they have to, they have to be allowed to test products um, to see if the consumer responds to it, right? Because if they're not going to fill a whole side of the store with these next gen materials, and the consumer's like, well, "That's really ugly," or you know, it's it's got to be emotional, like Mike was saying. So I understand the testing in the beginning. But hopefully it's an investment, that testing. Hopefully, you know, next year they, they place real orders. Yeah, definitely. I think there's some interesting points you made there about breaking down silos between, you know, technology and fashion and partnering, you know, focus on kind of a long-term collaboration. But also, yeah, that, that aspect of kind of bringing awareness and kind of visibility through through these kind of smaller collections can actually help quite a lot. I mean, with with Myco Works, their, their partnership with Hermes has, you know, 
definitely launch them onto onto the scene. I'm sure that with Stella McCartney, it's it's quite the same thing. There's been a lot of awareness that kind of comes with that. And I know that luxury brands can make this this kind of um, material innovation quite sexy. Um, and I think there could be other missed opportunities that maybe the rest of the industry is still yet to pick up on. Is there maybe any that you think are, are kind of pivotal right now that the industry still needs to, to notice? I guess I would pick up on this idea about different business models, right? So as Tom mm-hmm. is exactly right that traditionally it's very transactional through the chain and there isn't a sense of partnership between fiber supplier and mill and between mill and, and brand, for example. Um, I do think that's something that has to change. And so that, as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to do a, a, a different business model where we create a network of mills. Um, we go and tell the brands, this is a network of mills that understands how to use these materials, that has met certain quality standards that you can rely on. And then they begin to build partnerships and, and do actual hand-in-hand innovation with those mills together, that, as opposed to somebody showing up with a, <laughs> here's all the new fabrics for the year. What do you think of these fabrics? They've been actually co-developed. They've been worked on together. That different way of thinking, I think, is really critical. If we're going to make change it's not enough to just do it one step at a time in a 10-step value chain. We've got to be sort of all talking to each other and doing it in kind of a more holistic way. I think that's really important. Our program is called Common Thread because we want to have it, something that carries all the way through the value chain. There's lots of other people that are doing similar things. Yeah, I can't highlight enough what, when, because I'm not, um, uh, as, a venture, as, a, as an investor, um, I look at a lot of industries. When I, when I started going into like textiles and fashion, I was shocked at how complicated the supply chain was. You know, yeah. you think it's going to be really simple and you're like, this is crazy. No, right. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a beast. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, it is one of the more complicated supply chains that, that, that kind of I've seen. And to, to Mike's point, when it, when, when we put the onus, the onus is at every step, every single kind of step in this value chain needs to be significantly more coupled to affect this change. Right. It's not because if 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 the fat if if the brand is dealing with the, with te- the textile textile supplier and saying hey I want something that is kind of uh, uh, much more sustainable, it's not totally in their control to give them that, right? They then have to go downstream to like four other people that then have to do something sustainable. So you can't have one actor who decides one day to do it. All of the actors kind of have to do it simultaneously for yeah. for the chain to actually work. And I think that that's kind of something that that introduces some complexity. Well, that's why transparency is so hard. And that's why there have been a lot of tech companies who now are working on the transparency of the supply chain. And they'll they'll work with companies. So brands have brought in, I can't remember the names of them now. There's two specifically, I remember. But anyway, they come in and they work with the production, com- uh, production department. And basically they seek to find transparency on every step of the supply chain. I, I would also hope that they would recommend where they could shorten the supply chain or, or whatever, but um, yeah, and then they apparently can make it available to the consumer, you know, on a hang tag and, you know, scan this QR code and you can see where this thing came from, from farm to this hanger, you know. Are there maybe any technologies in that material innovation space that um, are exciting you right now? I'd say this is for, for all three of you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I, th- I do think the cultivated animal cell is really pretty fascinating. But um, the, and then I'm also really excited about the uh, precision fermentation processes that can create fibers like long filament fibers to replace polyester, just to come back to the polyester devil again. Um, <laughs> that, that really, really, I can't even tell you how happy that would make me if we could take polyester out of the equation. It's it's the most used fiber in the world. Like 70% of the fibers being used in the world right now are polyester. Um, so, and I do think that like, you know, athletic wear is a big part of that because of, mm. you know, uh, the popularity of athletic wear, the popularity of, uh, you know, that whole category of leisure wear and stuff. So, um, but that's a huge amount and it's so dirty and so damaging. So if we can replace polyester and that, that again, I think that will be through um, experimentation in replacing silk or offering an alternative to silk or replacing wool or offering, you know, I think that's where it's going to come from. So those, those, that sort of technology and that sort of scientific work is really got me excited. Hmm, brilliant. Mike? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wouldn't pick out any. I think there's lots of really cool technologies going on. I wouldn't focus so much on that. It's more around um, the sort of the sea change that we, we started this call with about, um, you know, I really do believe consumers are, are absolutely now telling everyone, look, I care about sustainability. It matters to me. It's part of my decision criteria. It's something I'm willing to pay more for. And I think the change that's beginning to happen at brands, that's what's going to really open all this up. If consumers are asking for it and brands see a way to make money on it, value chains will figure out a way to meet that demand. So I, I have a lot of confidence in the creativity and the, the energy of entrepreneurs all around the world to, to make the kind of change, but it won't happen without those things happening. But, and I do see, I've asked a long time, I've been optimistic a long time, and I've been early a long time. I do really think it's beginning to change. And so that, that for me is the single biggest source of optimism, the, the change in the consumers and the brands listening to it and changing their procurement strategies to really start to pull these solutions through. Brilliant, Gatano. Yeah, I, I would say that that it's like, I agree with uh, Thomasina that um, a lot of the stuff on the early side is is very exciting, but the place that I'm, I'm, I think I'm the most excited for is, I, I do think that in the next two to three years, we're gonna have our first um, uh, kind of biomaterial that 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 kind of begins this um, on the mycelium side specifically that kind of goes after one specific kind of material which is leather and gets there on the unit economics and mass adoption and I think it really takes just a couple like the stuff that that, that Mike is doing the the stuff that you know Microworks is doing a couple more is it's not only those two in the world but getting to the to the scale piece where you start the snowball effect. You need to start somewhere, right? And I think that we are going to be reaching scale critical mass on some of these materials in the next like 36 months. And that's when you start, you, you, instead of swimming upstream, you start swimming downstream, right? Yeah. Instead of like every single set is this huge thing that you have to climb, it starts getting easier and the easier, and then the snowball starts and it's very, very hard to stop that kind of technical innovation scale snowball went once it starts and customers respond to it right and we see we've seen in other industries and i think we're at that kind of tipping point in the next couple of years echoing mike like let's just stay optimistic and mm -hmm. keep fighting the fight the good fight and uh and i think it will happen i do think that in the next you know possibly two years as gatano was saying which yes yeah, some are definitely going to be scalable and commercial um but i think the next five to ten years are just going to be a sea change of, of materials that will affect us in a good way. 